As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 69, North by Northwest. Today's episode is a journey on sea and land, around the Mediterranean and into ancient Syria. We are going outside the Egyptian empire to meet the peoples and places that bordered the imperial realm. It's an experimental episode, a History of Egypt episode that's not really about the Egyptians. Part travelogue, part geography, all fascinating. You and I are going deep into the realm of the foreigners. We'll meet strange gods, international traders, and all the peoples on the northern edges of Tutmos III's imperial dominion. This episode is brought to you by Daniel McGlinchey, Jerome Bussman, and Margaret Hicks in gratitude for their financial support. Many thanks, folks. We couldn't do it without you. And now, on with the show. We begin our journey in Egypt's northern territories. We are in the Nile Delta amid the narrow waterways, marshes, and papyrus thickets. The water moves slowly here as it trickles into a thousand times a thousand streams and bayous, making their leisurely journey northward towards the coast. Down there, the Nile will flow out into the Mediterranean Sea and into different lands. Pretty soon, we'll join them. But first, a small detour. Before we can go out into the open ocean, we have to stop for supplies and to acquire a good sea-going ship. So we head further north, towards a bustling energetic port, one of the great centres of life in the 18th dynasty delta. We are sailing into a harbour town called Peru Nefer, which translates to Good Travels or Bon Voyage. A magnificent town, built by royal edict and centred around large government palaces, Peru Nefer is the destination of choice for travellers and traders hoping to visit the eastern Mediterranean. It's the perfect place to start our journey. As we sail around the headland, the town opens before us, and we are greeted with an impressive sight. Dominating the town's horizon are three great palaces, fortified symbols of the Egyptian government and its presence. From their battlements and their offices, officials and scribes take stock of everything that comes into and goes out of the town. They catalogue, tally, and tax. For their efforts, the royal treasury grows richer every day. It's not hard to see why. The river around Peru Nefer is clustered with great ships, huge constructions of up to 15 metres or 49 feet long. Built of cedar wood and staffed by large crews of all nationalities, these ships, fully stocked, can carry as much as 20 tons or 40,000 pounds of cargo. They are the container ships of their day, 
and they connect the world in ways that historians are only just beginning to understand, even now. But before we chart passage on one of these ships, we need to visit the government palaces. There's something I want to show you. Just outside one of the Egyptian palaces, archaeologists uncovered a rubbish pit. I mean, an ancient rubbish pit. A dump of Bronze Age material dating to the time of Thutmose III and his successor, and associated with the palaces built for his government. In this rubbish dump were the fragmentary traces of some truly spectacular artwork. Specifically, artwork that was once made to decorate the walls of the large palaces. These paintings only survive in a tiny portion of what was once there, and it's lucky that they do it all. The fact that they survive at all is down to an accident of fate. Decades after they were installed, they were then removed by artisans and dumped into this rubbish pit. There, they were buried for three and a half thousand years. And thank goodness for that, because now they've survived. And with the right references, historians have reconstructed them. It seems that the palace of Peru-Nefo was decorated with paintings of great splendor and beauty. Scenes of nature, scenes of humans, scenes of vibrancy and energy. Scenes that you just don't often see in Egyptian art. But that's kind of the point. These paintings are not Egyptian. Take, first of all, the nature scenes. Wild animals, both real and fantastical, charge, run, and leap over the ground. A leopard dashes between fig trees, a lion leaps over a canal, and a bull flees desperately as another pair of lions attack it ferociously. They are beautiful scenes. Of course, you can see them on our website and Facebook page. They speak of a lifestyle or a type of person living in this area who was fascinated with images of nature, and of the complex relationships between predator and prey, which tell us something about the hierarchies of power. But then there are the animals that are a bit more fantastical. To go along with these real scenes, we also get a griffin, half lion, half eagle, great wings spreading out from its back. It is a terrifying image, a symbol of deathly power. But then there are the scenes of humans, and these are slightly different, because they are scenes of humans themselves triumphing over nature. For this, we look to a long set of scenes showing men leaping over charging bulls. They dodge and duck beneath the beast as it charges. With skill and daring, they dodge the bulls and display their prowess for all to see. Humans, you see, are superior to animals in this particular ideology, and each feat is a testament to our skills and our cunning. As each leaper somersaults or ducks over the and under the bull, they display their mastery of nature. So, there is a hierarchy between animals, and there is a hierarchy between humans and nature. To the artists who painted these scenes, surely nothing could be more powerful than the power of a human. It seems that someone living here was fascinated by these images of deadly animals and their prey, and of symbols of power that came not necessarily from nature, but partly from the imagination. So, who was commissioning these paintings? Who was making them? If you've been paying attention to the podcast, specifically Middle Kingdom episodes, you may have a clue already what I'm going to say. The floor paintings in Peru Nefer were made in a style found mostly on the island of Crete, in the southern Aegean Sea. Crete, one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean, holds a special significance in the story of the ancient world. The Cretans were a seafaring, palace-building, bull- and sun-worshipping people whose culture thrived over approximately 1600 years, from 3000 to 1400 BCE. 
They were some of the most accomplished people of their day, having established a thriving cultural and trading kingdom all across the Aegean Sea. So what are they doing in the Delta? Connections between Egypt and the Aegean Sea go way back, at least into the Middle Kingdom. Ships have come here regularly, even during the Second Intermediate Period, and the people of Crete have traded constantly with the Nile Valley. In the days of Thutmose III, it is possible that a small community of Cretan expats had settled down in the Delta. It's not proven, and archaeologists only speculate on this, but it would account for the richness of their material remains. The artefacts are so abundant, in fact, that one of the head archaeologists working here, Professor Manfred Biertak, has even proposed something unusual. He suggests, stressing the speculative element, that in the days of Thutmose III, it is possible one of the Egyptian palaces actually played host to a foreign princess. Biertak suggests that maybe, just maybe, an elite woman of Crete was sent to Egypt to become a wife of King Thutmose. If he is right, it would explain why these rich and beautiful artworks show up in the palace so randomly and so suddenly, and why they disappear so quickly. If the princess came to marry Tutmos when he was about 20, and then died when he was about 40, it would provide a very logical snapshot of the palace. So maybe this palace at Peru Nefer was not just a government office decorated nicely, but in fact a royal residence, a residence for a foreign lady, a princess of Crete, who had become a minor queen of Egypt. Now, the people of Crete are traditionally referred to as the Minoans, but I'm not going to call them that. Instead, I'm going to refer to them by their Egyptian name. This name is the Keftiu. Keftiu means the ones who are at the rear. Now, what this meant more generally was that the Egyptians tended to look eastward for their trade and travel. These Cretans, who lived north by northwest, were coming from the wrong direction. Well, wrong or right, that is the direction that we are going in now. We're setting sail from Peru Nefer and heading out to visit the Keftiu in their home. We are sailing to Crete. We set sail on a large sea-going ship. It is built of cedar, with a single mast and a large sail. It is designed for the Mediterranean voyages. Sailors, experienced and practiced, crew its decks. Beneath the floorboards, cargo holds are full of Egyptian goods to trade in foreign lands. Our ship carries ceramics, jewellery, scarabs, amulets, and most importantly, gold. Large quantities of gold mined from the southern lands of Nubia and the eastern desert. We are taking this to foreign lands, we are going well prepared for trading, and for obtaining those rare foreign goods which the Egyptian elite desire so greatly. The journey to Crete would traditionally be taken in a sort of roundabout manner. The Egyptians would sail to Syria and Palestine, then island hop over to Cyprus, and then over to Crete. As far as we know, they didn't necessarily sail directly across the Mediterranean. It's a long journey, and not a particularly safe one. Egyptians and Bronze Age sailors in general seemed to have hugged the coast wherever they could. But we're going to skip the tedium of the sailing life, and come directly to the Keftiu's island home. Welcome to Crete. The people of Crete lead a charmed life. 
protected by the sea, they developed a strong cultural influence over islands and the mainland, with their influence extending into mainland Greece and even up to Anatolia or Turkey. Some say that this developed into an empire of the sea, a thalassocracy, but the debate still rages on that particular point. For sure, the Cretans sailed the seas far and wide and traded their goods with peoples all over the eastern world. When they brought these goods back to Crete, they collected them in their hilltop palaces, recording them in a complicated script which only survives in fragments today. Much of the Cretans' internal history is lost, but what little we have paints a lovely picture. By the time Thutmose III came around, the Cretans had developed a series of large and sophisticated towns. These towns were built up around palaces, elite centres where religious and economic activity mixed together in a bustling hub. Part temple, part market, part bureaucracy, the palaces of Crete have left us some absolutely wonderful and gorgeous remains. Approaching Crete, we must note the deep sparkling blue of its waters, the pristine beauty of its beaches. We are far from the marshes and swampy hills of the delta here, let me assure you. As our ship comes into the northern coast, Keftiu come to the beach to greet us. They are familiar with Egyptian ships, and as we disembark onto the white sands, they direct us to the royal road. Following that, we will soon reach the nearest town, one of Crete's most prestigious and important sites. We are heading for Knossos. Knossos was the largest and most powerful town in Crete, as far as archaeologists can tell. It was first excavated around 1900, and then partially reconstructed by its excavator, which is a controversial decision in the archaeological community. Today, Knossos is quite beautiful. It is quiet and safe. I had the pleasure of visiting Knossos recently, in June 2016. Let me tell you, it was fantastic. The first thing you notice at Knossos is the sense of peace. Knossos feels wonderfully safe. Even though it doesn't have large walls or fortifications, the palace sits on a hilltop in between two high ridgelines. To its south there is a mountain, where priests would watch the stars and observe the heavens. To its north there is a long royal road stretching to the coast, a road intended to bring tribute, trade goods and agricultural wealth. Apart from its sense of safety, Knossos is beautiful. Olive groves and orchards fill the hills, and it's not hard to imagine some local gazing out over the hills as the sun and clouds drift by lazily. The breeze is cool as it comes in from the sea, and the valley is as quiet as it can be in the modern age. Truly, it is a magical area. The Keftiu of Knossos lived in small houses clustered around the larger palace area. Inside the royal residences, there were various areas set aside for worship, Worship which was often directed towards the rising sun, I might add. There was a throne room for receptions and hearings, small bathing pools in several houses, and everywhere the frescoes and paintings that are so utterly unique to the Cretan world. There really is nothing like Cretan art. On the one hand, it reminds you of Egyptian, Assyrian and Near Eastern art, and there are definitely some parallels there. But it also has a vitality that we often associate with much later Greek art, a vitality and sense of movement or dynamism that is particular to this part of the world, at least at this point in time. We know the Keftiu were avid seafarers. Their artifacts show up all over the Aegean, particularly on the island of Santorini, which was a major stronghold, and on the coast of Turkey or Anatolia. Greece obviously has plenty of Keftiu relics in its Bronze Age sites, 
and ancient towns as far east as Cyprus and Syria have evidence for the Keftiu visiting them. But not everything they did was based on ships and trade. They also produced plenty of their own goods. At home, Keftiu industry was focused on a variety of things, like ceramics and jewellery, but also on swords. They were very good sword makers, surprisingly. They made large axes, which seemed to be ceremonial, and they made all kinds of decorative objects. They used gold a lot, probably gold imported from Egypt, and they also used silver and bronze. They made beads out of crystal, lapis lazuli, obsidian and amethyst. They made faience, enamels, and they used African ivory extensively, and they even manufactured their own glass. Cretan jewellery is particularly pretty. Necklaces in the shape of bees, gold rings decorated with cities and dancers, bulls and flowers, and a particularly cool one where a crowned male holds aloft a pair of ducks for some reason, while serpents fan out to either side. That one's a bit weird, I have to say, but I like it. The Keftiu were big on their production, and it's not hard to see why. It's economic 101, right? To trade, you've got to make stuff to export. They did it very well. Even in the later days of their culture, the Keftiu remained the masters of Aegean trade. Although they were eventually replaced by other cultures, at the time of Thutmose III, they were still lords of the sea. If the Egyptians controlled the Red Sea, and the Syrians controlled the coast of the Levant, the Keftiu were the undisputed masters of the islands, of Greece and of western Turkey. Of course, as visitors from Egypt, we are most curious about one thing. How much were the Keftiu influenced by the people of the Nile Valley? Well, we know they communicated with them, traded with them, and visited them. But was it a simple economic relationship, or was there a deeper cultural exchange going on? This is a very difficult question to answer. Historians are debating it as we speak. What we know for certain is that the Keftiu picked up on some Egyptian symbols and used some Egyptian objects in their daily life. For example, ancient sites on Crete turn up plenty of Egyptian amulets, scarabs, and jewellery. So at the very least, people living on Crete enjoyed using Egyptian items as their personal accessories. We also know that some of the Keftiu's religious symbols were borrowed from Egypt and the Near East. For example, stylized crests, like a bull's horns, were added to Cretan temples as a sort of decorative element. To some historians, these horns of consecration are almost exactly like the Egyptian symbol for mountain or the horizon. So maybe they're not bull's horns at all, but symbols for mountains. That would make some sense, because the Cretans practiced a lot of their religious behavior in mountain caves. So maybe the Keftiu adapted an old Egyptian symbol and borrowed it for their own rituals. It's speculative, but the parallel is there. It might be an impossible question. I mean, how much do connections or coincidences really prove influence? In other words, just because the people of Crete used similar motifs or symbols, should we just assume they were being influenced by outside cultures? For all we know, it's just a coincidence. It's not like the Egyptians have a monopoly on particular shapes. Maybe it's all just a misunderstanding. Honestly, we may never nail this one down properly, but still, it's an interesting question. Whether they were influenced by the Egyptians or simply communicated with them, the Keftiu of Crete forged a fantastic and splendid culture on their particular little corner of the world. They traded and sailed all over the eastern Mediterranean, 
and their accomplishments are justly well remembered. But with that note, I think it's time to leave Crete again, and start our slow journey back towards Egypt. We have a couple of stops to make on the way. Following the Cretan trade routes, we've got some different places to visit, places that will offer us useful goods to take back to the Nile Delta. So, it's time to move on towards the island of Cyprus. We set sail on our ship, heading eastward once more. Our destination is the island of Cyprus. Cyprus, called Alashia in Egyptian, has been a port of call for a long time. Egyptians have been coming here since at least the Middle Kingdom, and probably the Old. The Alashians of Cyprus had a prosperous island community going, and the Egyptians always kept an eye on them if they could. By the time of Tutmos III, they had developed their own independent kingdom, free of foreign political domination. They were politically organised and had a king, called the King of Alashia, and they were rich thanks to their excellent trading connections with Egypt, Canaan, Syria, Anatolia, Crete and Greece. For the Egyptians, Cyprus was a favoured destination. Nearly a thousand years of trade have passed before our ship approaches the island. There have even been raids in the past. Amenemhat II of Dynasty XII supposedly sent a raid against the island of Cyprus. His warriors carried off huge quantities of goods, copper, amethyst, ivory, bronze, wood, captives, daggers, knives, chisels, harpoons, all kinds of things really. They brought them back to Egypt where they filled the coffers of that king's great treasuries. For the Egyptians, it was a most profitable exercise. So Alashia is no stranger to Egyptians, for good and bad. Fortunately, the past few centuries have been peaceful, and as our ship approaches, we see more than one Egyptian ship passing along the horizon. Why have they come? Well, same reason we've come. We're here for Cypriot copper. Cyprus was arguably the centre of copper production for the Near East. In fact, Cyprus produced so much copper, and was so well known for it, that the word copper actually comes from the word Cyprus. In ancient Greek, the island was called Kupros. Add a few millennia of linguistic evolution, and from Kupros comes copper. So when we talk of copper, we are touching on a very ancient pedigree. The Cypriots exported to Crete, and they exported to Syria. Eventually, those exports found their way to Egypt, where they were absorbed into the local economy to become tools, weapons, artwork, jewellery, and decorations for buildings. Valuable stuff, and a lot of it came from Cyprus. For the Egyptians, Cypriot copper was a truly valuable commodity. Tutmose supposedly claimed over 200 kilograms of it in a single raid. And down the line, kings of the later 18th dynasty would send orders to Cyprus of up to 30 tons at a time. So Cyprus was doing a roaring trade in this metal. Whoever controlled those mines must have been stupidly rich. At the time of Tutmose III, the Alashians of Cyprus were undergoing a period of increased prosperity. People were moving from the countryside down to the coast, where they formed increasingly large towns built around ports. It seems that, as the Near East and Egypt began to trade more, the Cypriots adapted their lifestyle to support it. Traders need produce, and the people of Cyprus had resources to sell. Copper was mined in the interior of Cyprus, and then taken down to the coast. 
It was fused into large ingots, shaped like animal skins, which could be carried on a man's shoulder. We see these ingots in Egyptian tombs, and the archaeological record has thrown up plenty of the real thing. Again, see photos of these on our website. Traders would pick the copper up from Cyprus's ports, and then take it to Syria, Canaan, and to Egypt. There, at the main towns, the copper would be smelted, smelted into bronze, for tools and for weapons. Weapons for armies, weapons for war, weapons for the major empires. Speaking of empires, our ship is now sailing dangerously close to some of those. As we prepare to depart Cyprus, just a short stop this time, we'll be heading towards Syria. There, we'll be entering the borderlands, the conflict zones between great powers and great kingdoms. With that in mind, I think time is pressing a bit. It's time to head back out to sea, and on to the second half of our journey. It's a long journey, so let's take a short break. seas are calm, thankfully, and we have avoided storms. Now, as we continue east, we are coming in sight of land once more. We come to the coast of Lebanon and Syria, and the great port towns, which were Egypt's most vital connection with the Near East. Here, amid bustling harbours and trade routes, people of the Levant made their livelihoods in some of the oldest urban communities in the world. The Syrian coast was the world's ancient equivalent of the Persian Gulf, the Malacca Straits, or the Panama Canal. The Syrian coast was the gateway point between two major worlds, the world of Mesopotamia, Canaan, and Egypt, and the world of Cyprus, Crete, Greece, and the Black Sea. This was the world's trade hub, and more than one historian I've read has referred to this area as the first high point of something like an international trade network. Obviously, it's far more complicated than that, and I wish I could go into the kind of insane detail those academic authors do. But believe me when I say, this was an incredibly industrious and busy time, and people were trading at least as much as they were fighting. While there were occasional flare-ups, and I'll get to those in a second, the land overall was quite peaceful, and in these coastal communities, the world came to trade. We already met one of these communities in the previous episode, the town of Joppa on the coast of modern Israel. Joppa, like the towns we visit today, was connected with the rest of the world by its port and harbour. Trade flowed in and out of Joppa, except in that brief period when the Egyptian general Jehuti or Thoth besieged and blockaded the city. Today, as our ship approaches the coast of Lebanon, Joppa is at peace once more. But we will not stop at Joppa today. Instead, we are visiting the northernmost port of the Egyptian Dominion. This is an Egyptianized city, long connected with the Nile Valley, and it is fascinating. This, perhaps, is my favourite part of the journey. Welcome to Byblos. Byblos is an old, old, old town. 
Current estimates put the first communities here around 8,000 BCE. That's 10,000 years ago. By the time the Egyptians started building their kingdom and their state in 3000 BCE, Byblos had already become a proto-urban state. As far as antique cities go, Byblos is right up there with Abydos or Jericho. In other words, it's one of the oldest quote-unquote cities in the world. And the Egyptians loved this place. In ancient Egyptian, Byblos was called Kupna, so I'm going to call it Kupna Byblos. Our ship approaches Kupna Byblos from the north. It is a smooth coast and makes for easy sailing. The coast on our left is covered in trees, rich stands of cedar wood, the prized lumber which even our ship is built. The beaches are white and pristine. Inland, farming villages dot the landscape, spreading out between the major cities. As we sail on, a general sense of peace might settle on us. We are entering the Egyptian dominion. Here, we are safe once more. Rounding a headland, we are suddenly greeted with the sight of Kupna Byblos at the height of its prosperity. Fortified, urbanised, and blessed with a pristine harbour, the town is a splendid sight. Men and women in Canaanite dress, jalabeas, and dresses of linen or wool bustle about. They are merchants, sailors and fishers, farmers and pastoralists. Some are craftsmen, hard at work in their small workshops, producing objects in styles both Canaanite and Egyptian. Kupna Byblos is a mosaic of different cultural influences, and all of this has left its mark in the archaeological record. Since the days of the Middle Kingdom, the people of Kupna Byblos have been intimately connected with the world of Egypt, far to the south. Great cedar ships come and go, heading to and from the Nile Valley. In fact, the connection is so strong that in Egyptian texts, some of the earliest references to seagoing ships refer to them not just as ships, but as Byblos ships. In other words, the Egyptians see Kupna Byblos as the definitive place for seagoing, sailing, and maritime activities. The people who live here are the archetypal seafarers from the Egyptian perspective. They called them those who are on the waters. In other words, Kupna and the sea went together like peas and carrots. If you had one, you had the other. As we sail into the harbour of Kupna Byblos, we are greeted with a warm scent. The scent of cedar wood that wafts gently from huge piles of tree trunks stacked up in storehouses. It is Byblos's primary export, and more than one international community is desperate to acquire it. But let's disembark and take a walk around. The city of Kupna Byblos is a large area. After all, it's very old. It is fortified and bustling, with temples, houses, and marketplaces clustered in together. It is crowded and noisy, and boy is it exciting. Within these walls, traders come from Cyprus, from Crete, from Turkey, and from Mesopotamia. They bring all kinds of exotic goods, both luxury and mundane. Assyrian and Kassite Babylonians bring lapis lazuli, which has travelled all the way from Afghanistan, and glass, which is highly prized. Alashians from Cyprus bring their copper and tin. Keftiu from Crete bring their ceramic wares. This is trade central, and a lot of goods are moving through here. Although so many different people come to Kupna Byblos, we, as visitors from Egypt, are really in home territory. The city and its rulers give their loyalty to the king of the two lands, and an Egyptian garrison is encamped either within the walls or not far from the city itself. 
The Egyptians own real estate in the city, in the form of great warehouses and workshops, which produce finished goods to be sent back to the Nile Valley. Kupna Biblos is an outpost of Egyptian industry. We are in a very important town. On a cultural level, Byblos is full of Egyptian influence. Its leaders do not call themselves kings anymore. Now, they call themselves Hatiya, or mayors. It's an Egyptian title, and it reflects the fact that the leaders of Byblos modelled themselves on Egyptian ideas. When the Egyptians slowly took over and dominated Byblos, the leaders of the city effectively were demoted from their earlier status down to subordinate officials, representatives of the king of Egypt. Under Egyptian influence, they used hieroglyphs to write their names, and even their official royal jewellery, like a wonderful pectoral that you can see on our website, is made with Egyptian motifs. But the biggest place that the influence on Byblos is felt is in the religious sphere, where there is a ton of overlap between Egyptian and Canaanite gods. The overlap centres particularly around one great, awesome, primary goddess, none other than our favourite, Hathor. Hathor, goddess of motherhood, of fertility, and of raw feminine power, was a big deal in Byblos. The Egyptians acknowledged it. One of her most common epithets in the Middle and New Kingdom is Hathor, Lady of Byblos, or Huther, Nebet Kupna. In her power and ferocity, Hathor was ideally set up to roam these foreign lands and to bring destruction on Egypt's enemies. But of course, Byblos was no enemy. And so, as the city grew closer and closer to Egypt, Hathor became a protective deity here, a powerful symbol of the city's obedience to Egypt and its great defences against foreign threats. The Temple of Hathor, which probably existed at Byblos, has not been discovered yet, so it's still hypothetical, but like, the odds are really high that it did exist. What we know is that in the town and its hinterland, Hathor became affiliated closely with a local Canaanite goddess, a powerful being with many of the same attributes. That goddess's name was Balat Jebal, aka Balat of Byblos. Jebal is the Syrian word for Byblos. Balat Jebal is a feminine counterpart to the Canaanite god Baal, king of the gods, and she is damn interesting. I wish I could do her full justice, but we're going to have to settle for a brief overview. The temple of Baalat Jebal, the Canaanite lady of Byblos, is old. It was built somewhere around 2500 BCE, which is the Egyptian 4th dynasty. So it has been around for a long time. The temple was built with some Egyptian elements, like a royal uraeus, and even a cartouche left on a block that was donated by King Pepi in Dynasty 6. It seems that the Egyptians recognised the value of this goddess, Balat Jebal, early on, and made the proper efforts to venerate her in her hometown. In fact, one of the King Pepis even sent offering tables to Byblos, specifically destined for the cult of Hathor, Lady of Byblos. So the religious connection between Kupna Byblos and Egypt runs very deep, and this connection was still playing out in the middle of the 18th dynasty. As we will see in just a moment, Hathor became a deity whom even visiting Egyptian officials still had to placate and make offerings to. Although they technically ruled Byblos in a political or cultural sense, the goddess Hathor was its great divine symbol, and the Egyptians gave her the proper respect. We will be returning to Byblos multiple times over the coming episodes, 
And so we're going to round out our little sojourn here. As we wander around the city of Kupna Byblos, we are suddenly aware of a great commotion. There is excitement going on near the walls and the gateway. Let's check it out. Hurrying back to the gateway, which overlooks the harbour, we encounter a great crowd. People are lining the walls of the city, looking out towards the harbour. They are in a good mood. Something exciting must be happening. We climb the walls, going up the stone stairs to the battlements. From here we have a commanding view of the city and of the sea, and what we see in the harbour is a sight for tired travellers' eyes. A fleet of ships has appeared around the headland, coming from the south. Great cedar ships are approaching the city, ships of great size and stature, ships of a distinctly Egyptian design. It seems that an Egyptian delegation is visiting Byblos. Well, this is excellent timing on our part, isn't it? How fortuitous! It's almost like someone engineered things this way. The ships are in town for a trade expedition. A royal official, the overseer of the royal seal, and overseer of the granaries, has come to Byblos on a mission. His name is Sen-Neferi, and he is one of our best sources for the history of relations between Egypt and Byblos during the days of Tutmose III. Sen-Neferi is a typical Egyptian official. He built his tomb at Thebes, near those of a hundred other officials of his day. He takes care of his duties on behalf of his king, and for his efforts, Tutmose rewards Sen-Neferi with wealth and prestige. Today will be no exception. At this point, we are going to end our journey around the Mediterranean. Now, we're going to tag along with Sen-Neferi and the Royal Expedition. So it's farewell to our sea voyage, and hello to the Egyptian army once more. Sen-Neferi's mission was most certainly a partly military one. Not to conquer or anything, but to acquire resources that would help Tutmose III in his future campaigns. The king needed ships in order to exert his influence on the coast of Syria. Sen-Neferi's expedition was specifically aimed at supporting this purpose. In one way, he was on a shopping trip. What was he shopping for? Well, what else but good Lebanese cedar wood. The expedition itself was quite straightforward. Go to Kupna Byblos, get cedar wood, and return. But doing that required a few important tasks. There were local politicians to satisfy, a goddess to placate, and a dangerous mission into the Syrian hinterland to pull off. First of all, the politicians. Seneferi needed the approval of the local leaders to get the material that Tutmose wanted. Fortunately, this one was relatively easy. The leader of Byblos was a loyal servant of the king, and the city itself was at the service of Tutmose. As I mentioned, the leaders of Byblos were no longer kings, instead they were mayors. They ruled at the mercy of the king of the two lands, and they used Egyptian methods to do so. That meant dressing like an Egyptian, writing in hieroglyphs, and doing what the king of Egypt asked. So whatever Sen-Neferi needed, the mayor of Byblos would work to provide. So, one obstacle down. The second obstacle is the support of a goddess, that goddess I spoke about before, Hathor, Balat Jabal, the lady of Kupna. To gain her favour, Sen-Neferi visited her temple, made offerings in his name and the name of his king, and promised more on his safe return. When the goddess's answer came back, Sen-Neferi was in luck, the permissions were granted. Sen-Neferi commemorated this event in his tomb, and of the expedition he wrote, quote, The sole companion, the mayor, seal-bearer of the king of Lower Egypt, Sen-Neferi, has come back successfully, having sailed on the great green, the open sea. 
I entered this mountain of Lebanon above the clouds. I entered the forest of cedar. The goddess Hathor appeared to me. I made offerings of millions of things on behalf of the life, prosperity, and health of your majesty, men Then the goddess permitted me to take these cedar trees from that place. Beblos gave the trees to Horus for the goddess's satisfaction. I caused that the trees be cut down from the pick of the crop. I brought trees as large as sixty cubits in their length, and of the highest quality. I brought them down from the hill country of the god's land. The great ships were loaded, and I travelled on the sea with a good wind, coming successfully back to Egypt. End quote. The royal official and his workmen acquired huge stocks of wood from the hinterland of Byblos. They were lucky to do it successfully, for this region was not yet entirely pacified to Egyptian control. I would imagine that Seneferi took a contingent of warriors with him, perhaps that garrison that lived at Byblos, in order to make sure that everything went well. I mean, the approval and support of Hathor is awesome, but it never hurts to have some good bronze weapons with you. Anyway, Seneferi and his comrades completed their task successfully, and they soon set sail again for Egypt. Sailing out of the harbour at Kupna, they could look forward to a warm reception at home, and the approval of the king himself. I'm sure when Seneferi and his ships returned to Peru Nefer, they were greeted warmly by the royal dignitaries. If Tutmos himself was in residence, then Seneferi could probably look forward to a commendation and reception with the great ruler himself. Happy days, all things considered. Seneferi's project was a very specific one. It wasn't just to acquire lumber for any old thing. The royal seal-bearer had been dispatched by Tutmos III to acquire resources. Resources that would help the king fulfil some of his future projects. As the great ships were unloaded and the royal craftsmen got to work cutting the wood up, they were laying the groundwork for one of the most audacious projects that Tutmos would undertake in all of his reign. For now, Tutmos was happy to let the shipbuilders of Perunefer do their work in peace. The king had other work to do. Work, oddly enough, that was actually in Byblos. Tutmos had a problem where Byblos was concerned. It wasn't the worst problem to have, but it was still a problem. Byblos was a prosperous town in a prosperous region of the world. Naturally, that attracted a few hungry eyes, and more than once the Egyptians had to fight to keep their hold on the region. By the time our current monarch, Menkepere Tutmos III, was about 30 years old, Byblos had once again come under threat from external forces. Predatory city-states in Syria were starting to eye up the coast of Lebanon, and they wanted to expand their influence into their wealthy part of this land. Byblos provided a particularly attractive target. It had excellent natural resources and a well-established community. It was connected with different cities around the Mediterranean and Near East, and anyone who controlled Byblos could be assured of some very lucrative trade income. Simply put, Byblos was a juicy piece of fruit, and hungry eyes were now looking towards it. The first threat grew up around the towns of Kadesh and Tunip, which are east of Byblos. Tunip, in particular, was flexing its muscle, and by regnal year 28 of Tutmos III, approximately 1468 BCE, the leaders of Tunip were ready to make their move. The Tunipites, or Tunipians? made their move by installing garrisons in towns near to Byblos. 
This posed a threat to any Biblite or Egyptian moving through the area, like Seneferi and his lumber-cutting expedition. From well-placed garrisons, the enemy could raid farming communities and trade routes. If left unchecked, Tunip could become a very serious threat to Byblos' economic status. This process was a threat to Egyptian superiority in the Near East itself. So when the region of Kupna Byblos came under threat, King Tutmos responded quickly and violently. We now return to the narrative of Tutmos III's reign, and more specifically, his military campaigns. For the first ten years of his independent rule, regnal years 22 to about 35, the military really was Tutmos's bread and butter, his most consistent and important project, and of course his most lucrative business concern. So for the remainder of this episode, and episode 70 forthcoming, the campaigns are the dominant narrative. What's surprising is that we don't know more about the campaigns themselves. Tutmos was kind of selective in how much detail he put into his war records. Some campaigns are well recorded, detailed and meticulous. Others, well, people have had to piece them together from jigsaws of other sources. Historians have done their best to untangle them, but there are still plenty of knots in those threads, and the best we can give is a general narrative. But, at the very least, we can say this. After the Battle of Megiddo, and up to about regnal year 29, Tutmos focused his efforts on Canaan and Lebanon's coast. He appointed overseers to the territories, set up supply depots, and worked to secure the trade routes and military roads that stretched all the way back to Egypt. Taking care of business, really. Now that work was paying off, and from regnal year 29 to regnal year 31, the king led three major campaigns from the land of Byblos deep into Lebanon and Syria. He crushed opponents, compelled tribute, and took hostages. In the process, he dramatically weakened the influence of his two great rivals and paved the way for some epic conquests in the future. Let's dive in. Before the Egyptian army set out on its campaigns, a royal official travelled to Byblos. That man's name was Intef and he was sent as the herald of the army. His job was to prepare the way, to make sure all the supply depots, garrisons, and towns of the area were prepared for Tutmos's arrival. They needed to get supplies together for the troops, and make sure there were adequate housing areas for all the army. It's that whole logistics thing we spoke of last episode. The army needed its supplies, and Tutmos had prepared the ground long before he launched his campaign. That campaign was now beginning. The campaign was launched in April or so, just after the anniversary of the king's coming to the throne. It was now regnal year 29, approximately 1466. It was just six years since Tutmos had become ruler in his own right. In those six years, he had crushed rebellions, organised the settlement and occupation of Canaan, and conducted additional campaigns. Now, he was beginning his fifth expedition into the Near East. This year, and the next, and the next, would see a trilogy of military endeavours into the region of Lebanon. This is our story, for the last part of the episode. The king gathered his warriors at Peru Nefer, the harbour town in the delta. The military storerooms were emptied and the warriors equipped. The ships, perhaps the same great transports used by Sen Neferi for his woodcutting expedition, were kitted out. 
they would now be troop transports used to ship the royal warriors to Syria. Their destination, of course, was Kupna Byblos, a town that was now under threat, a town which Tutmos was going to defend, and defend aggressively. Tutmos and his warriors, the Iwa'iyut, or household troops, were going on a preemptive strike against the towns of Tunip and Kadesh. They would ravage those towns' farmlands, and do what damage they could. They would expel any enemy garrisons threatening Byblos and its territory, and pave the way for future incursions even deeper into Syria. It was half police action, half raid, and all savage. Along with the Iwa'iyut and the king came a number of royal officials. These men were there to manage logistics, organize the troops, and connect with nearby towns. Fortunately, these officials mostly built their own tombs down in Thebes, and they included these campaigns in their autobiographies. So much of what we know of what went on in this period comes from the small snippets that these individuals left behind. So thank you, Tutmos, for bringing these folks with you. Without them, we might know a lot less. The king was effectively taking a small mobile government with him, one that could fight enemies, conquer territory, and also gather resources in order to secure Egyptian rule for years to come. In effect, Tutmos was planning some serious, long-lasting conquests. So the king and his warriors set sail for Byblos. It was spring, and the winds were blowing well. They arrived swiftly and set themselves up in the city. Tutmos, of course, made offerings to the goddess Hathor, and perhaps her Canaanite counterpart, Balat Jabal. He made prayers for his success in war, offerings to ensure that those prayers were answered, and promises and dedications to protect future efforts and to ensure future success. To double down on his prayers, Tutmos decided to make some contributions to Hathor's temple. To do this, he delegated one of his officials, a man named Minmos, to the project. Minmos, or Born of the God Min, was proud of his work, and he noted it in his tomb biography. He claims to have stretched the cord, i.e. to have conducted the foundation ceremony, for a new temple of Hathor, Lady of Byblos, in the great city. If Minmos is saying what we think he's saying, and not talking about a temple elsewhere, it seems that part of Tutmos's imperial project was to enhance the splendour of Hathor, where it would be the most effective, on the borders of the empire, where the goddess, who could be so ferocious at times, could rage successfully. Going out into the wilds of Syria, the king and his army needed that goddess's protection. So, whatever the cost, Tutmos would get it. Minmos was the man who helped make that happen. Anyway, the king took a brief pause in Byblos to assess the political situation. The problem was this. Byblos's hinterlands, with their copses and stands of cedar trees, were no longer safe. Cities in Syria, Tunip and Kadesh, were increasing their influence by force and troops from those cities, particularly Tunip, were posing a direct threat to the city of Hathor, the city of Egypt's imperial splendour, the city of Kupna Byblos. As you can imagine, Tutmos was not tolerating that at all. In three successive campaigns, the Egyptians marched out of Byblos, leaving their ships behind in the Great Harbour. They marched into the hinterlands, towards their enemy, towards Tunip and Kadesh. Tutmos's priorities came in two flavours, First of all, crushing the opposition and taking control of this region more fully. This meant capturing farmland and villages for his people's use. No more raiding or seasonal campaigning. It was time for northern Canaan and Lebanon to become a province of Egypt properly, 
to give their service and their produce to the king of the two lands. By doing this, they would find themselves protected from his wrath. Secondly, he was going to put that wrath into action against his enemies. Tunip and Kadesh would be punished, their lands ravaged, and if possible, the cities taken. Now, as for the actual campaign itself, not much is known in terms of events or plans. The records are fragmentary and have only been reconstructed partially. To summarise the first campaign, I'm going to let distinguished professor Donald B. Redford describe it from his great work, The Wars in Syria and Palestine of Thutmose III. Redford says, quote, Tutmose's strategy involved three related initiatives, one after the other. First, the Tunip garrisons were captured and the food stocks were secured. This permitted access to the northern rivers, and for the first time, the territory of Kadesh was also ravaged or burned and sacked. Thus, Tutmose served notice that from now on, no part of inland Syria lay beyond the reach of Egyptian forces. He also affirmed by his actions that the food-bearing lands along the coast belonged to Egypt, not to ravage from time to time to deny their produce to others, but to protect and husband for Egypt's use. End quote. So, when the first of these three campaigns was over, Tutmos controlled a large area north and east of Byblos. Farmland and towns were now in his pocket, and a stretch of the coastline, including valuable harbours, was obedient to his will. The garrisons which Tunip had put into the Lebanese heartland were now gone, and Tunip itself was isolated. The same was true of Kadesh. Although Tutmos had not captured either of the two cities, he had ravaged the lands around them, and effectively cut off some economic resources. So the fifth campaign was a rousing success. Tutmos had done well. But the job was not completely done. In fact, it was not done by a long shot. And so the king and his army returned in Regnal Year 30 and Regnal Year 31, in order to extend the borders further. These are the sixth and seventh campaigns. Not much is known about them, and I won't bore you with the fragmentary details. Instead, we'll do a flyby. Tutmose's sixth and seventh campaigns were now aimed at outright control rather than destruction. From this point on, he was in the business of subjugating local rulers and compelling their obedience. Hostages were taken back to Egypt, the children of the rulers and the elites, and taxation was imposed on the conquered. Finally, in year 31, Tutmose completed his trilogy, and the region between Kadesh and the sea was annexed fully into the Egyptian empire. But Kadesh and Tunip remained stubbornly resistant, and this was a problem. Kadesh, in particular, had been one of the main instigators of the Megiddo Rebellion. In theory, it should have been attacked and destroyed long ago, but the Egyptians held off on their revenge, and more than eight years after the rebellion itself, Kadesh still stood strong and proud. Not for lack of trying, of course. The Egyptians had ravaged Kadesh's and Tunip's territory, burning fields, taking livestock and captives, that sort of thing. But still, the cities had not been taken. Kadesh in particular was difficult to assault. It sat on a promontory between two rivers, and so attacking it was nearly impossible for the average Bronze Age military. For the Egyptians, who never quite learned how to assault fortified cities, Kadesh posed a serious military obstacle. Tutmose, I think, can be forgiven for leaving Kadesh on the roadside. Instead of throwing away lives and time in futile assaults, he acted more intelligently. 
Tutmos isolated Kadesh, cutting off its food and human resources in an attempt to humble the city rather than destroy it. Essentially, it seems like he was trying to compel Kadesh to submit rather than having to attack and overwhelm it directly. Granted, we're speculating based on some very slim evidence, but given Tutmos attacked the lands around Kadesh pretty thoroughly and didn't attack the city itself, it seems like he was working on a slightly more subtle plan than outright destruction. So the 5th, 6th and 7th campaigns had their merits. They brought in new servants and subjects, and they extended the borders of Egypt. But they also had their drawbacks, including the ongoing failure to destroy or capture Kadesh and Tunip. There is no two ways about it. Tutmos had not achieved all of the objectives he might have started out with some eight years ago. But as Regnal Year 31 drew to its close and Tutmos's army returned home from Lebanon, the king had an idea. Maybe he didn't need to attack Kadesh after all. Maybe to compel Kadesh's obedience, he simply needed to cut off its most vital lifeline. Kadesh did not work alone, you see. It had the political friendship and backing of a most powerful foreign state, a kingdom called Mitanni. Mitanni gave Kadesh political support, and presumably some kind of economic assistance as well. Well, if that's how it was going to be, then Kadesh itself did not necessarily need it to be attacked. All Tutmos had to do was take away its most loyal and effective friend. And that is exactly what he would do. In the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, Tutmos III goes after the Kingdom of Mitanni, and our narrative of his campaigns come to an end for a while. In the process, Tutmos demonstrated why many have called him the Napoleon of Egypt. All that on episode 70, the very last episode of the History of Egypt podcast. Nah, I'm just kidding. It's the last for the year, though. We'll take a holiday hiatus until the end of January, to relax, to recharge, and to research. Then we'll be back, and better than ever. And now, here is a silly little poem I cooked up. It is called The Keft and the Syrian, referring to the Keftiu and the Phoenicians. <clears throat> the Keft and the Syrian went to sea in a beautiful cedar wood boat. They took some good copper to a town we call Joppa, and gave it to the general called Thoth. The Keft bowed low, and called to Thoth, Lo, we serve his great majesty's car. To the strong bull above, from one that he loves, the Horus King Menkepa Ra. To Ra, we serve the good god, son of Ra. The Keftiu said, Oh, how great is his name, and wondrous his far-reaching fame. Offerings we've carried, we don't wish to tarry, for on our ring we carry his name. Great Thoth sent him south, to Menkepa Ra's house, to the town where the travels are good. And into the palace the Keft carried no malice, but ingots and tokens of stone. Of stone he brought the king good precious stones. Amethyst truly, and lapis lazuli, he carried into the great house. King Tutmos received him, that Keft we call Cretan, and his offering did cause him to smile. How happy to see you, cried the king we call Nisu, that such kingdoms bow to the Nile, the Nile, that all lands do bow to the Nile. Strange Cretan, I wonder, do you come from far yonder? I do, said the Cretan, I sail. 
by the light of the stars, from horizons afar, I come from a land full of tales, of bulls who are men, of seas without end, of men who on wings they do fly, who, mainsail in hand, sail to every land, and never in storms do they cry, no cry, no never in storms do they cry. King Tutmose was gleeful, and never deceitful, he gave the good Cretan his due, with arms full of gold, and young servants, not old, he praised him, and bid him adieu. Back home he should sail, his fellows regale, and tell to all and to you, of the great one who lives, who prospers and gives, great gifts to his friend Keftiyu, and you, great gifts to his friend Keftiyu. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.